0: All the way from Bokota village in Limpopo, South Africa, we bring you Missionary Minds, where you can learn about family, church history, biblical worldview issues, and of course, missions. All from the mind of a real world missionary of almost 20 years. And Bodhisattva, last time we spoke about your early life as a believer and some of your schooling. And we also delved into a lot of the philosophical elements when it comes to uh, missions or strategic elements, the thoughtful approaches that one has towards missions. I want to dive a bit into now your transition from the time you visited Papua New Guinea and how you ended up in Limpopo. So how did all of that happen?
1: First of all, I went to college in Florida, and when I finished with college, um, I was called by a church in Chicago to come and serve, but I mentioned to them that my goal is to move overseas to plant churches, so I would only come to serve at their church if they would send me out, and they agreed to do that. So I went to that church um, looking for a church to send me out. And the church that I grew up in was a a good place, and I'm thankful for them. But they um, uh, asked me, Why don't you find a bigger church that would be able to send you overseas? So uh, I went to work at a fairly large church, and I knew from the beginning uh, my goal is to leave. And they were very kind to me, gave me the opportunity to teach in a number of places, more opportunities than I think I was uh, prepared for. But the Lord is very gracious to. Teach us all and to train us all, and how many times he overlooked bad sermons. Um, what, what what kindness! Um, but since I knew I wanted to go to be a missionary, the pastor at that church was on the board of directors of Baptist World Mission, so he took me to their missions conference. And during the day at that missions conference, a three or four day missions conference, during the day I would be reading books and talking with missionaries and one of those meetings in 2001 i m- slipped into a meeting a back a-, a large classroom for a christian school and at the front of the classroom an old man and maybe a second man and then a-, a missionary to south africa were sitting together and they were talking and i just sat in the back of the classroom with my book and went reading i think it was hudson taylor's two volumes right there on the shelf and the two volume biography of hudson taylor and I was reading in the back, and then I heard the missionary at the front say to the man, and the man had a very deep voice, David Cummings, and he'd written a couple volumes of Baptist history. And he said, What are your goals now for being a missionary? And the man's name was Kevin Brosnan. And Kevin said, I would like to see 20 American missionaries and 200 South Africans raised up who would cross cultures to plant churches. And he said, How's that going? And he said, well, we have, I think they had three Americans joining them at that point. And then the guy with the deep voice, I remember him saying, what about you, young man? And I looked up surprised and said, uh, okay, I'll go. <laughs> so that was that was how my contact got started with south africa
0: yeah and uh, as you mentioned that i remember doing a similar episode with buddy paul on his missionary journey and he also had very surprising entries to the mission field and so it's interesting to note some the somewhat similarities there and then okay so you uh do that part and you end up in south africa so tell us a bit about the ending up in South Africa from that point?
1: That was 2000, 2000, 2001, somewhere around there. And I purchased a ticket, came here for a month, and I I didn't see the cities much, but what I did see, I knew I don't want to be in cities. I want to be in lesser-reached, poorer places with less opportunity. So I didn't do my research very well. I went back and said, I'm going to go to South Africa. I'm going to work with the Tsonga people. And... Looking back, if I could do it again, I wouldn't come here. Uh, it's not, it's not um, far enough or hard enough or it has too much opportunity for the kind of place that I would plan to go if I were starting over. I think my children are seeing that. And so I, I think my oldest son is eager to go to a place with less opportunity. Uh, but it's on a spectrum. I, well, I like to use a 1 to 10 scale. So the Tsonga people are lower than the Americans. And they're lower than the people in Russia. So, okay, I'm moving in the right direction. Let me do the best I can for the place I'm at in, in history. So I moved here and rented a house in... Well, I, 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 I waited two years because I found this girl that I'd like to marry. And I spoke to her parents and said, I'd be interested in marrying your daughter. And she was only in her first year in university. And the parents said, that's fine, but she's got to finish four years. And that was very hard for me. So I said, okay, I'll stay in the U.S. And then when my future wife finished the first three years, then I moved to Africa. I stayed here a year single and then went back and married her. So that was the gap between, um, but that was, uh, God works all things together for good. But there's something, there's something interesting here about raising funds that I think I'd really like to communicate, and I hope people actually care about listening, to. And that is, while I was in Chicago, Bethel Baptist Church, I was asked to run the missions conference. That is, the missions conference was going to be eight days, from Sunday to Sunday, and they were going to have, I think, eight missionaries in, one missionary per day, something like that. And the pastor said, Will you run this missions conference? We've got about 800 people in the church, and we'd like to raise a lot of money for missions, and we'd like to support these missionaries if we can. So I had a lot of chance to speak with the missionaries who were there that week. One of the missionaries had, I think, three kids then. I don't remember the details of the kids exactly, but I remember this. He had been on deputation for over two years, and he had. A very small percentage of his support raised. He was anticipating, if it went at the same pace, that he would not be on the mission field until four years of traveling around America asking people for money. So that was entirely unacceptable to me. And I had seen and heard of things like that in other places. Another thing happened at the same missions conference a man came to our missions conference who was going to be a missionary to Utah, the state of Utah. And he was going there to plant churches, but he was not a good communicator. And I remembered thinking, someone needs to help this guy. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that he talks so poorly. He's not, no one wants to listen to him. And slowly those thoughts came together until... It's now in this form. It is sin. It is wrong. It is foolish. We should not have a good attitude about the current process of raising funds in the developed world. I don't know what they're like here in South Africa because it's even worse here. We don't even send our missionaries. Here we get around the problem of having a bad method for sending missionaries. We just don't send them. But there, they're sending missionaries. But they have a bad method. So now here we've got this case where two different missionaries, one guy can't get a support and the other guy shouldn't get support. What's the problem here? And so I I I tried to, in my own mind, put together a plan for deputation, a raising support that at least seemed Christian or wise or thoughtful. And that is very few churches should support the missionary. There should be it really would be great if there were three churches supporting the missionary. And he could visit each church for a month. He'd be a month at each church and they could give a third, 33% each, and then a support is raised and he's on the mission field. Three months of deputation, three months of furlough. And what that would do is the churches would know the missionaries. They could see if this man is a bad preacher and they could talk to him about it because the church would know the man. They would be friends with the man. They would be close with the man and with the wife. The way it is now, no one wants to rebuke the man because no one knows him and they only say, well, we only have to put up with him from Sunday night at 5 p.m. until Sunday night at 8 p.m. And then we never see him again. Or if we take him on for support, we're only going to give him $20 a month. And when he gets, that's an exaggeration, although that did happen when I was growing up but that's 40 years ago. Uh, now, I don't think, I don't, I don't know of any churches that would give $20 a month, but I did turn down churches who were giving $25 a month in 2003. Um, th- those things shouldn't be. Why would you give a missionary a small, a, such a small amount of support? It's very clear you're not invested in him, and you're not going to feel comfortable rebuking him knowing we barely give you enough money to cover your petrol to come to visit us. So, I would say, give a man enough money that you feel comfortable telling him when he does something stupid. Give a man enough money that you can tell him, hey, 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 what, what is this? Your sermon's really boring. You're going to learn how to preach. But why are we sending you around the world to speak Tagalog in the Philippines when you can't string two logical thoughts together in English? If you bore us in your mother tongue, it's going to be a Positive Chinese torture to do that in China. What what are we doing? We're sending out nice guys who aren't prepared, and no one ever has the guts to tell them the emperor has no clothes or you're not prepared because we don't really know them. And the scripture says in Proverbs 27 that iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. But in reality, there are no friendships in these kinds of support scenarios because. You haven't taken the time to become friends with them. And you won't give him wounds. The wounds of a friend will heal you and build you up. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You won't give that guy wounds because you're really not his friend. And you're not his friend and you really don't want to be his friend because it takes a lot of time and money and energy to be his friend. I recognize that. And I think that's the problem. We need a model of of raising support that says, if you want money, I would like you to come For a month to my church. I'd like you to serve. I'd like you to preach. I'd like you to sing and play if you can. I'd like you to teach the children. I'd like you to go with us on evangelism. I'd like you to open yourself up about your budget and your money and your marriage and your prayer life. I'd like you to rebuke us and we're going to rebuke you. I'd like us to make jokes together. And then we want to really actually love you. And if you're not up for that kind of a close relationship, then why don't you go look for someone else? I think we should talk that way. And and there's more in that, but maybe I've talked too long. But if you want more, you can ask more.
0: It would be a good uh, additional episode. I, I even thought for a second of segueing into that. But I really want to make sure we capture as much of your journey as possible.
1: Well, I've got enough for a full... I've got enough material prepared for a full podcast on that so it's not as if there's not enough
0: so that'll be the teaser that'll be the teaser okay so um you waited and you went to, you came back to south africa for a year you went back and you married your now wife sissy amy and you came here with her what was the setting like where did you live where did you go uh, how was that
1: we rented a house on a farm um, for about, she came here in August or September. We got married in May. No, we got married in June. So it'd be end of June. So it was July, August. Yeah. We were married for about 10 weeks and then we moved overseas. So Amy was 22 years old and, um, we moved overseas. We lived on a farm for eight months, maybe. And then we, um, Built a house in the village of Makongele Village, right beside Sifazonke. We're all dying, right by Give Me. These are the names of the villages, right by the name of Feed Us. So there was a village named Feed Us, a village named Give Me, a village named We Are All Dying. That was where we built our house. And we took all the money from our wedding and put it into a house. And I've got a wife who is a normal girl, but she just doesn't love money and she doesn't love luxury. She's normal in many, many ways, and then she's above normal in piano skill and whatnot. Uh, but I'm grateful to have and I say that not because in any way I want to belittle my wife. I'm I'm not. I'm saying it because I don't want people to think, oh, I can't do that. Yes, actually you can. If you just love Jesus and read your Bible and do your duty. I think it's my wife's greatest gift. When I've been asked to describe my wife, Amy and I were asked once, how do you describe each other if you picked three words to describe each other? And I said, I would describe Amy as feminine, biblical, and duty-bound. And I think in those regards, that's the, you don't think of those as really remarkable. She's a real lady, doesn't at all want to drive. She wants me to drive. She will drive and can drive, but she doesn't want to. Um, she's very feminine, very ladylike. loves the Bible, and will do her duty as long as as long as her lungs are still filled with air that's probably the best thing i can say about her after 18 years of marriage
0: wow praise god and then how did you go about finding the people you would preach to how do you start where do you try to go and find the souls that you wanted to win for christ
1: uh, we we tried every method that we could think of when we moved to Makongele, i went on door to door my wife made Sweets for people, and we would try to get into their home to do Bible studies with them. I made a map of the village, just drew it up by my hand, and we would go to people's homes on our map, trying to be friends with them. We started children's Bible clubs on Thursday, where Amy and I would teach. We went to the schools and asked if we could teach in the schools. And then there was a church in Mashamba, started by the man trained by Kevin Brosnan, whom I mentioned earlier. Kevin Brosnan had uh, evangelized Godfrey Engelmani. he lived about 20 minutes away so we drove out to Godfrey's church and we took anyone who's willing to get in our Bucky and drive with us there every Sunday now people were very willing young people were very willing to get in a, get a free ride in a Bucky so uh, pretty soon we had a full vehicle full of people who were driving there um, but it wasn't a church and they were all mostly young people but we would just I passed out tracts. I translated a tract from Tsonga, from English into Tsonga. I didn't know Tsonga well enough. I had help from Godfrey with that. And then we had that published. We would give out tracts. I would do evangelism in the schools and Bible clubs with the children. I didn't do street preaching until years later. But um, the main ministries were door to door evangelism, um, teaching English, youth groups in the schools. Um, sweets and things that we would cook for people that Amy would cook for people. Oh, and then we started a, <laughs> we started so many things. And most of them failed. <laughs> um, we started a Saturday breakfast for young men. So when we found young young boys who wanted to go with us to church on Sunday, then we started with them on Saturday. Now, actually, I followed Paul there. Paul came about was it two years? Paul came two years after I was here, and then Paul very quickly got the idea of, why don't I cook breakfast for these boys? And very early on in Paul's ministry, he started cooking breakfast. So then I saw what he was doing, so we started cooking breakfast for boys, and then Amy said, why don't I do it for girls? So we started cooking breakfast on Saturdays, all these things, and then some worked and some didn't, most didn't work.
0: And can you speak a bit about the philosophy there with trying many different things and trying to find something that sticks. Why do you do it like that? Do you think that's a profitable way to go about it? Um, How should people think about that if they're thinking of how to reach people as well?
1: Uh, No, we haven't found anything that's been very profitable. But we have to do something. So, uh, I'm very discouraged from one perspective with the the way the ministry's gone. We've reached so few people of the six million. And yes, there's both sides. On the other side, on one hand, I'm rejoicing and praising the Lord because, for example, Kubai was baptized, and I'm thanking God that last week Tiani Chauke, a 50-year-old woman, said, I'm ready to give my testimony, and, and I think God has saved me. Fantastic! So there, are, there is one side where we can say, God is doing this. That's Psalm 18, where David says, um, I am righteous. He's there saying the good. But then further on in Psalm 18, he says, I'm a sinner. Both are true. God is actively answering prayer, and yet sinners are overwhelming us with their evil. So on one hand, God is doing great things. But on the other hand, in a broader picture, the Tsongas are lost, and we're doing so little. So you ask the question, why do you try these things, and just you try so many things, and why do you try them? Our answer is because we love people and we don't want them to go to hell. Time is running out, and I only have a few days. If I'm a missionary for 50 years, just do 50 times 365, and you'll come up with what? 18,000 days? I've got roughly 18,000 days. Is that right? Nah, it's got to be more than that, right? Uh, 10 years is 3,650 days, so 100 years has to be 36,000. So 50 years has to be 18,000. If I'm doing my math right, I just off the top of my head here. If I've got 18,000 days to wake up among the Tsongas, if I get that many, how many, what, what can I do to bring them in? If I had 18,000 by 6 million, and that's how many people I have to reach. Now, of course, I I, I believe in God's sovereignty, um, but I think I have, enough, I have enough people telling me, and I have enough in my heart that's completely trusting in the confidence of God's sovereignty, but there's more in me that needs to say, I need to get out there. I need to win people to Christ, the both streams are in Scripture. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. And I think our problem can be we, we, we make ourselves comfortable with God's sovereignty. He's going to save his people. Fair enough. But don't forget that Paul says, I endure all things for the elect so that they might be saved. He has complete confidence in God's sovereignty, but he says, I'm going to endure everything. And our Lord did not tell them... When he, when he came when they came back to him at the uh, uh, well in Samaria, he did not say to them, "You see this woman? Just be confident. God will save His people." He said, "No. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white, all ready to harvest." And then later on in John chapter nine, he he says to them, "I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. That time is coming when no one can work." He did not say to the disciples there who are asking him questions again, he does not say to them, "Yeah." My great confidence is that God is sovereign. That is our great confidence. God is sovereign. But we are very apt to make it too easy on ourselves. All of us are. And we make things very soft and gentle. And we need to be constantly, like John Wesley, constantly saying, what can I do to find some sinner and bring him to the Savior? So that's why we tried so many things. And most of them failed, because I don't know of anyone who knows the right way. We're all trying to somehow get to sinners. When I talk to Muslim missionaries or missionaries among the Islamic peoples, they'll tell me, oh, it's so hard. You take a long time slowly working with the people. That's what people say when they're working in Western Europe. Oh, it's so hard among the secularists and atheists here. Fair enough. It is hard. I'm not doubting that. What they're saying, in other words, is we're not seeing much fruit. Or, go a little deeper, we don't know what methods can bring more results. So I'm saying that same thing. I don't know. I've tried door-to-door. It's not very profitable, but I tried it. I said for years, I'll throw it away when I find a better method. Well, in 2019, I found a better method.
0: Just to to go on that a bit more, speaking about some of the fruit that you've enjoyed, uh, how long did it take to start winning some souls and to get to the point where we see churches established uh, because there's Elam? Uh, church there. And so, tell us a bit about that, from winning the (laughs) first souls to there.
1: Well, if you're trying to go a little bit chronologically, I'll just say that our goal was always planting local churches, churches that are reproducing, churches that are indigenous, churches that look like the churches in the book of Acts, the 14 churches that you can clearly demarcate in the book of Acts. There might be more, but there's at least 14 in Acts chapters 13 up to Acts chapters 21. We want that. That's what we want among the Tonga people and the Venda people and all of the 7,000 language groups of the world. We want churches like that. So our goal from the beginning was churches like that. So starting in 2007, we began meeting on Sunday nights in our home in the village. And then in 2008, we began meeting Sunday mornings in our home. And then from there, we just kept pressing out, how can we start reproducible indigenous churches? That was always the goal. And then then from that, there's all the interesting stories that the Lord has given us. We were attacked by a crocodile and um, we've had uh, attacks on our home and uh, a number of crimes and criminal activities and et cetera, et cetera. I still remember when we left the Bible college trailer outside my gate, not realizing how bad the crime was. And then when we came out in the morning, the tires were stolen in our little village. We live in a dead end. So there's no road out, there's no traffic on our street, so somehow someone walking, and there's not even much foot traffic on the path where we where our house was, and someone walking by must have seen that, rushed in the night, gotten a jack, jacked it up, taken the- so all those kinds of things are the people that stop by and asked for our house, just knocking on our door, saying, "Can I have your house?" on and on um experiences like that. But slowly we just began. Evangelizing more and more. The church at Elam, God used his sovereignty. He used a criminal attack on our house with guns and beating and bullets and blood to cause us to move out of the village. And it forced the national, one of the men who was in the church, Alpheus Nyalungu, was forced to take over that church because we left in the light of that trauma. We came back a few weeks later and he had done a great job. Then the South African government, by God's providence again. Uh, just like God uses God uses the king Ahasuerus to uh, his drunkenness and his anger and his rage and his divorce of his wife, all of which were wicked sins. God used all of that to put Esther up ten years before Haman says, "I'm going to kill all the Jews." Well, in the same way, God used those bad guys to bring guns at us so that we would be forced to move out of there, so that Alfius would be forced to take over. And now Elam is a reproducible church.
0: Praise God, brother. Any highlights you would say you would draw on from your time here so far that you could uh, look back on and say that, um, wow, I'm really thankful for that in particular uh, as we close off?
1: So many. I'll just say one. When we began building the church building in 2011, the first church building in 2011, we refused to use any U.S. funding. So we didn't ask for it, but we didn't say in our minds that we would refuse it. But we did say we wouldn't ask for it. And we were offered, I think, $700 at one point, which we did take. But it took us six years to build the, the building in Elam. And we didn't ask for money at all. And other than that $700, we weren't given any money from America. Um, and at the beginning, in 2011, we had 10,000 rand Which I think at that time was divided by nine. So maybe a thousand US dollars in the bank. And they wanted all of that for the stand, for the property when we were going to get the church. So we basically started buying that land, but no money even to put up a fence around it. And in 2011, October, we started there. And the men would meet in our house every Saturday night for an hour or two. And I asked them at the beginning in 2011. Should we write America, write churches in America, and ask them to give us the funding for this building? And everyone there said yes. Now, I already knew in my mind, I'm certainly not doing that. I'm just going to use it as a teaching tool. And they all said yes. I said, no, I don't think we should. They didn't do the Book of Acts. And then we just went on building. We sold Bibles on the street. Um, we sold, my wife made lip balm. Uh, the women sold that. We had um, constantly working. We made chocolate no-bake cookies and sold those. Um, And then we asked people in the church to give, but the offerings were only about $20 a month. So we just began building. And whenever we had money for cement, we would build. And when we didn't, we would would, uh, go back and sell. So Paul had actually finished his building. Well, I guess about a year later, he had finished his building but we didn't know how to build we just um did our best piece by piece and we did not pay any builders it was only people from the church and 6 years later just working on Saturdays whenever church members would work with us we went out there basically every Saturday for 6 years and money trickled in if we didn't have money we would sell if we did have money we would build and eventually uh the building was built but from that uh At the very end, before we had the roof on, when we had the walls complete, we were meeting again every Saturday. And I asked them, We don't have a roof on. What should we do, men? Should we ask them just to send us money for a roof? I'm sure the church in America would do it. If we asked them to send us five or $10,000 and we can put a roof on this building, should we do it? And I'd actually had churches say to me, Do you need any money? Christmas offerings are coming up. And I can still remember Alpheus Nyalungu saying, no, we have learned that we black people don't need to always put out our hand. We are men. He said that. We are men, and look what we've done. Let's just keep going like we have. Shortly after that, a church in Johannesburg, without being requested, took up an offering and sent it to us and said, we'd like to put on the roof of your church. And when I shared that with them, it was, it was a real joyous time to say, We've been working for six years with blisters on our hands to build this. We're, none of us are builders. We don't know how to do this. And God mercifully said, "Okay, that's enough. I could have made you do the rest. I could have made you do it all." Um, but He didn't. He gave us that, and we put the roof up ourselves. We just bought the materials with the money that was there, and we had never put up roofs. But we just we just did our best. And and uh, uh, what? Six years later, seven years later the the roof rarely leaks sometimes it does in one spot if the winds are really bad but there's no cracks in the walls uh, no cracks in the foundations um and it's holding us
0: praise god brother what a, a testimony of god's grace and god's kindness and as i think about it uh, it must have been a long arduous difficult journey to reach that point uh it's a beautiful building looking at it now uh because of all it represents and all that went into it and as god is building his church and building his church among the tongas as well i wonder if at this point or at some point in the future it'll be at that point again where the rest of the walls are up but the 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 roof isn't there in the ministry among the tongas and if god would grant some sort of gracious work for the final piece to be added on top and um, a final influx of Tongas, whether in our lives or in the future, but he will gather in his elect. And to our audience, thank you for joining us for this episode of Missionary Minds. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate it and subscribe to keep posted with more upcoming content. Feel free to share this episode with someone who might find it interesting and submit any questions you may want answered on a future podcast. You can email those questions to paulschleiline at gmail.com. You can also visit between2cultures.com for other resources like this. I'm your host, Jemmukani Katunga, and until next time, that's it from Missionary Minds.